Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. This is Jura Taylor, your host. Before we get into this week's podcast episode, which is a cracker, it's called, what is it called? Good question. It's called how to stay motivated when the pain is deep. (laughs) You'll understand why I call it this um, when you start listening. It's a conversation interview with a friend of mine, a hero of mine, Josh Stinton, who is uh, one of the world's only charity adventurers. He finds the world's hardest challenges, and then he signs up to the hardest classification on that challenge. And then he makes sure that he's never, ever done that challenge before. And then he goes and finds a charity, mostly charities that help children, that need support and need awareness. And then he partners up with these charities and connects with their story and does this crazy, does these crazy painful adventures so that he can raise maximum awareness for these charities. It's just, it just blows my mind that the, the pain that Josh puts himself through. And so I use this as an opportunity for him to share his story, but also to explore his mindset, how he stays motivated whilst he's training and putting in the long hours and experiencing grueling conditions whilst doing the world's longest ski race or doing the world's hardest mountain bike race or his next one is nuts. He's cycling the length of Japan, but not on a bicycle. That would be too easy. He's using a hand bicycle, a bicycle where you use your hands to pedal the length of Japan, 3,008 kilometers. Wow. Before we get into this episode with Josh, I wanted to let you know of some of uh, the flow state travel plans that are coming up for this summer, uh, just in case you wanted to tune in, meet up, connect, drop into flow together. I am going to be... Um, Where am I going to be? I'm going to be in Europe in July, predominantly based out of uh, London and Berlin, um, but definitely have some free time. Um, If you want me to run workshops on flow, if you have a place in mind, if you have an idea in mind, if you run a company and you want me to come in and basically teach you how to develop a company that has a flow culture, um, then let me know. And then in October, we are running a quest to Peru. We have about four spots left for this quest to Peru. It's going to be a quest following the Andean shamanic tradition. It's going to be a plant medicine journey. We're going to be going deep into ourselves, deep into connection with nature um, to explore what we really are, what life is all about, how we can fine tune our life to live in resonance, to live in harmony, to live in the flow of life. That is what this quest is all about. If you have a yearning, a calling to go to Peru and to explore plant medicines in a safe environment with highly experienced guides, um, then please let me know. Just shoot an email to jiro at flowstate.co. Thank you so much for listening. We're about to drop into episode 76 of the Flow State Performance Podcast, How to Stay Motivated When the Pain is Deep with Josh Stinton. All right, welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. I'm here with Josh Stinton. How you doing, Josh? Absolutely great. Good to be here with you, Jiro. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome. It's been a long time coming. For those yeah. who, uh, Josh and I lived in the same town of beautiful Manly in Australia, and um, there's been a lot of, uh, I hope, mutual respect in terms of the stuff that we do, and, and uh, yeah. a lot of respect for Josh's. Uh, he's, he's a full-on adventure man. We'll get into this. Uh, in this conversation, but I, I reckon like there's few people on earth who have some of the insights that Josh has around drive and motivation, um, meaning. 
So we're going to dive into a few of those topics today. So, so first of all, man, how do you kind of like describe, uh, I guess, what you do and a little bit about who you are? What I do, that's, um, that's a, it's a good question. What I do and who I am, um, I found an interesting way to kind of bring those two together. So what I, what I do on, um, on a label is I'm a charity adventurer. Um, and that was a, it's a bit of a title that was kind of given to me as a, I think at first kind of a joke from the Australian media and then it just took on and, and kept going. So what I, what I do and how that kind of came to be is I, uh, I take on the hardest physical challenges in the world in things that I have no idea how to do, like zero ability in. And I'll say, <laughs> correct, that's, that's a standard response. And, and, and then I'll sign up for the hardest thing in that thing. And, um, and the entire journey I, t- I take on to raise awareness for a new small charity every single time. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been my journey for the past three years. So I'm up to my fourth big challenge now that I'm training for in October coming up. and. If you'd have told me four years ago this would be the story, I would not. I, I, there's no way I could even wrap my head around it as to how it's come to be. <laughs> this is us now. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, a suck of a punishment? <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah, essentially. So you find the, the hardest challenge, and then you find you find the hardest challenge that you have least ability in, and then you find the hardest category or classification of that challenge. And then, yep. and, and then I love this extra layer. And then you, it's almost like this beautiful, there's, there's like some sort of correlation here. And then you find like the charities that have least awareness around them. Um, yeah. So that your, the, the amount of pain that you can put yourself through with these, the most obscure and extreme challenges correlates to the most exposure you can get for these companies, these organizations that don't have much exposure. Mate, you've nailed it. And that's exactly how it draws together. So it's, wow. it's, and, and how it's evolved is it's been completely organic, you know, because I'd, I'd be really happy to kind of give you the guts of this journey, you know. Yeah, please. And yeah, and, and, and how it came to be, you know, selfless to say it was my, it, in the beginning, it was my ego, Jiro. It was, I was in a conversation with a good friend of mine from Sweden about, we're going about five years ago, and we were in Manly, and he was telling me about how he was off to do the hardest cross-country ski race in the world in Sweden this 90 kilometer long, like it's kind of the crown jewel of races that cross country skiers take on and Scandinavians all know it very well. And we were a couple of beers into our conversation and my ego wrote a check that my uh, body had to cash a few years later when <laughs> nice, I said, nice top gun quote, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I said, um, uh, I, I said, look, mate, I would, I would like to, I would like to take that thing on. I want to try this ski race. And he just starts laughing. He's like, you can't do that. You don't know how to ski. You know, I'm from Colorado originally and I've never skied in my life, which makes it even more pathetic, Jiro. And um, of course, we, you know, you, you live in Manly before and you know exactly how no snow, uh, how, you know, it does not exist there. And so I was like, well, look, I'm just going to figure out a way to get into this. Uh, so I, I signed up or I applied to do the race. Didn't get a ticket. I got knocked back. Um, so there's 16,000 people that do the race and the tickets sell out in about 80 seconds. So I applied year on year for a few years and, and my, I was about the third, third attempt, I think it was, I got a ticket. I was like, Oh God, right. Like <laughs> I, I have to do this thing. Right. And like, cause I just kept, it was like a calendar reminder. I just kept applying for it kind of laughingly knowing I wasn't going to get in because it is the hardest ski race in the world. And, and they kind of, they, you know, they accept you on merits of your previous skiers, skiing ability. And, 
apparently if you have no experience in skiing at all, you're not really high up on the ranks. So didn't get a ticket, but then, yeah, then, and then I, and then I found myself with this ticket. So I, then the journey began, but I didn't realize what it was actually going to do for me because at first I was just going to do it because I said I was going to do it and I wanted to take on this crazy challenge. So I, I Googled how to train for cross country skiing on land. Um, that was my first step. And I came across these roller skis, uh, you know, so you could ski on land and you can only imagine how that looked going up and down Manly beach on uh, a pair of roller skis. And, and, and it's really difficult. Like the whole challenge itself is just, I mean, the training for it is really, really hard. And that's when the next layer really kicked in. When I realized, you know, my motivation to do it, it was enough for me to get to the door, but to get beyond the door and keep pushing, I needed another type of motivation. So I really, truly had to switch from an intrinsic motivation, which was me being proud of myself for having done a thing to an extrinsic motivation where I needed something else that I felt relied on me to be able to finish. And from there, I just, I made one phone call to a guy named James Thomas. He and his wife run a small charity in Australia called Field of Magic. And what they do is they've got a grief counseling program for children that have lost a loved one that are living with grief. And so I reached out to him and said, look, man, I'm going to be taking on the hardest ski race in the world. And I have no idea how to ski. And I, uh, I essentially need your help because I need to be motivated for this. And, and they said, look, yeah, they said, well, we've never had an ambassador before. So I guess we'll send you a t-shirt, you know? And then, so that was it. And now I had my, my why. And every time, you know, which was often, I didn't want to get out there and train on these roller skis or didn't want to go to the gym because I've never been a real gym advocate fitness person in the past. Um, then I had this why I had this purpose and I knew these children were actually going to be able to benefit if I completed this thing. And right, one thing led to another because it was for charity and because it was this crazy story. I found myself in a conversation with a woman from the Manly Daily newspaper. I'd never been in the news in my life before. And she said, uh, this is a pretty crazy story. We would, we'd like to tell that, you know, in the Manly Daily, if you don't mind. So here I found myself in the Manly Daily, which I was super excited about. Well, then the next day after that was released, I got a phone call from the producers of the Today Show. And they said, you know, is this true? Are you going to be doing this the hardest ski race and you've never skied in your life? I said, yeah. And they asked, well, okay, will you come into the studio and, and go live on air tomorrow at 7.45 in the morning and tell the story? I said, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I was absolutely besides myself with nerves because I've never you know, been on live, live television before. And um, that TV interview went quite well and it made its way back to the Olympic community. And the Norwegian Olympic team actually caught wind of what was going on and they reached out and sponsored me. So here I was sponsored as an honorary Olympian for the world championship cross country ski team in a race for something I've never even done in my life. And, and I emailed them back. I said, okay, guys, again, for the removal of any doubt, I've never skied. Like I have no idea how to do this. And, and they just laughed. They said, no, we know it. Not only are we going to get, like loan you the gear. I mean, the sponsorship wasn't financial at all. And, and, for every every one of these challenges, I I pay for everything out of my pocket, and you know I, sometimes gear gets donated and things, and that's great. But 100 percent of the funds that get raised go directly to charity, so none of, it's, it's not a money earner for me at all. But I but I reached out to them and or, you know and and said I didn't know how to ski, and they said you know not only we're going to provide you with the gear, but we're going to send a guy to meet you at the beginning of the race, so you know how to put your skis on your own feet. So we know you don't don't know how. <laughs> 
So, so that was it. And, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up asking myself a bunch of serious questions along the way of, you know, what, what is it that I really need to do to finish this? And, and if I looked at the day, you know, say the week after the race, and if I look back and it was a success and I was able to actually complete it, well, what were some of the things that I was going to have to sacrifice along the way? And, you know, if it was a future state scenario of success, what were some of the things that would have surprised me if, you know, in, in, in the journey? And I just kept asking myself those questions. And surely enough, what I was doing was I was retraining myself not to look at obstacles, but rather uncover opportunities. And I just kept, I just kept tuning into that. And, and um, you know, on the story goes, the day of the race was minus 17 degrees, 7 o'clock in the morning in Salem, Sweden. And that was the first time I've ever had my feet on skis in my life uh, was the morning of the race. And off we went, uh, you know, so 90 kilometers, we made it. The downhills were horrifying, but we made it. I never took my skis off once. When you say and, we, um, was, there, was there somebody like with you the whole time? Oh, no, sorry. I mean, we, we, I, there was, so Oscar, my friend that actually yeah. did the, uh, I was in the conversation with yeah. told me about the race. He, he did the race alongside of me, but we, I was by myself because he, he was hours ahead of me <laughs> shortly right. into the race. Yeah. But, um, but no, I was just, yeah. So sorry. We, I was, uh, yeah, it was, did, did the whole thing and it took me 11 hours and eight minutes and 58 seconds to complete it, but just nonstop pushing. And, uh, you have to do the race in 13 hours. And so I am proud to say that I've got the title of being world completed the hardest ski race in the world without ever having skied before that's what the <laughs> organizers say i'm pretty excited about that i i don't think there's many people out there trying to take that title from me Juro. <laughs> you're gonna have that for life brother <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that one's yours so yeah what did you deliberately avoid going to snow beforehand just so just 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 to sort of like create the actual experience of novelty and that that level of extremity so i absolutely did yep so so you're when you put the skis on and and you realize that you're on snow (laughs) what what did it feel like like did did the the roller skate i saw you in manly on those with those ski poles and the the, yeah i saw you training yeah Uh, yeah so how did they correlate to the actual snow experience look Quite, you'd be surprised, actually quite similar, but I mean, obviously there's going to be a lot of differences being on the terrain itself. Like for instance, on roller skis, you, you have to really like, you're, it's a manual push and you don't have as much glide as I found out quickly that you do on the snow. So (laughs) the, the morning of the race, right? The gun goes off, they raise the gates. I push for the first time ever on, on skis and I didn't realize how fast I could actually go. And I just completely ran into the guy right in front of me, <laughs> like right at the beginning, wrapped, my, wrapped around him. And it is this older Swedish guy, really lovely guy. But he just turns around and he, he's like, says something in Swedish. And I was like, oh, sorry, uh, this is my first time I've ever skied. And his, the look on his face, he's like, he goes, you've never skied before. I said, no. And he's like, he said, today's going to be the longest day of your life. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And he was right. It was brilliant. But it was honestly, mate, looking back, that, that was the best days of my life that I've ever had. And it was such a turning point for me because, you know, as, as, as my, my lovely mother always, always drilled into us boys growing up that, you know, once you, 
once you have an opportunity, once you once you realize you have the capacity to help other people, it ceases to be an opportunity and becomes a responsibility. And off of the back of the media that came from the race, um, the awareness that came around it, Feel the Magic, that charity, they had over 200 families sign up for their grief counseling service that didn't know they existed previously. And then I realized... I've stumbled on quite by accident. I've stumbled onto a model that was going to change my life forever. And that model is, as I said before, if I, if I sign up to do these really, really ridiculous and difficult things the whole time. So it's not for just Josh on Instagram, but it's, I'm a conduit to tell that story about charities and the work that they're doing. And as and I'll, I'll continue to tell you a bit more, obviously about the story and some things that I've learned about raising awareness um, once you really humanize a process and you're able to connect people with the stories of the people that are being helped by the charity, it really brings it home. And, and I found that that's, that's, that's my magic here is I can actually find a way to bring these stories out by way of these challenges. Yeah. Beautiful model. And, uh, yeah, cheers, man. Amazing. <laughs> like I want to get, I want to get more into, uh, some of some of the other adventures, uh, including sure. what, some that sound even more painful, and the future, uh, yeah. which just sound absurd. Um, <laughs> which I guess there's a pattern here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd love to be on your team. Um, can I can I just put myself on your team that that kind of like um, informally just keeps an eye out for absurd challenges and sends Ooh. sends them your way. It would be an honor. Please do. Please do. And the, and the more absurd, the better. Please. All right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever like roly-polyed across Australia, for example. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Yet. 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 <laughs> but man, tell me about, I'm so curious about your state of mind as you, as you went through those 11 hours. Like, I'm, I'm so curious yeah. to, so, so obviously there's such novelty going on and there's, there's, there's a high when you realize that you can slide and and on skis and you're and you're actually doing the thing, and it's like, yeah, take me through a little bit of the the roller coaster of of emotions uh, through that eleven hours. It was it was like I said, it was incredible. You you have different peaks where your adrenaline is really high, but I mean, obviously, over the course of eleven hours, you can't. That's not sustainable. You know, it, it's it dips, and when it dips, it actually dips quite hard when you're riding a high, you're feeling good. You're like, okay, I've actually got this. You're out there in the Swedish backcountry or wherever your challenges are going to take you. And when you drop and you realize you still have another 50 kilometers to go in what it is, what it is that you're doing. Um, for the first one, there's, there, there's certainly the, the, the challenges or the, the charity, you know, the, the children that I had to think about. Uh, yeah. I was a mentor for one of the grief camps that they run. So I got to meet, I got to meet a young guy named Zach and he was telling me his story about how his, his father unfortunately passed away uh, as he got into a vehicle where the alcohol or the, the driver was drunk. And so he, he said, you know, he was really upset because he was never, he was never going to get his dad back. So he was dealing with the anger on that. But however, at camp, he felt that it was his role to be a strong role model because he's felt that he's he's able to accept the grief and he wanted to be a role model for other children and he's telling me this at a, such a young age and and you meet incredible incredible inspiring children like that and I just kept having conversations that I had with him in my mind and thinking you know 
our bodies will essentially do what we tell them to do. And when you're able to dip into these stories and these, and these connections that you've made with people, it's, it's incredible how much, how much fire it actually gives you to complete a thing. So, so that was the one side of it, you know, and the other side is, I mean, I'd, I'd put in the work. There's no question when it comes down to when the day comes, you'll know whether or not you did the work enough to get you there. And I was really proud of how my body was feeling, um, how I was mentally feeling because I'd gone, you know, I'd, I'd been on the roller skis for hours and hours and hours and I wouldn't listen to music while I was training. So my mind didn't have anywhere to go to in terms of external motivation. I just had to go internally. So I was able to connect to that mentally. Um, and a big one is is support, and this is a, a great story. So, so the race is ninety kilometers. At every ten k, there's a checkpoint, and, and there's a there's a crowd around, and you can get a quick. I mean, you don't stop skiing, but you get a quick drink of water, a quick bite of a muffin, or whatever it is that you need, and then you keep pushing. Well, what I what I didn't know is that. I made it to that first checkpoint and then I, I heard this familiar voice mm-hmm. and it was this, there's this guy at the front of the, of the, he, he pushed his way. There's hundreds of people there and he pushed his way to the front. And I just heard this looking good, Josh. It's like, what? And I looked over and here's this guy, Eric. He was a, he's the flatmate of mine from nine years ago when I first moved to Australia. And here he is standing there. He's from the south of Sweden, and he never told me that he was going to come. He drove seven hours that, that overnight to get there, to be there at the start of the race. And he said, looking great. I was like, Eric? It's like, my God, I, was like, I, mean, I haven't seen you in almost a decade. I'd love to say hi, but I, you know, I've, got this, I've got this race I've got to do. <laughs> and his response was, yeah, that's why I'm here. He said, I'm going to be at every single checkpoint, and I'm going to meet you at the finish line as well. He goes, so I just want to look forward to seeing you throughout the race and he made it every single checkpoint he would hike up or he would drive up and then hike back down into every single checkpoint along the way and he was there nonstop. and i knew that i had him like at 10 so i'd cross the 50k mark and i knew at the 60k mark i had eric to look forward to see and and so back to the power of community and support that that, i mean i still get goosebumps actually thinking about that 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 moment and and he was there. He was at every single checkpoint. One time I had to go to the bathroom quite desperately and he held my skis for me while I ran off and did that. <laughs> and, and he was there at the finish line and it was just an absolute legend. So if it, and, and he wasn't, you know, I didn't, I hadn't spoken to the guy in almost nine years and we were, to, we were flatmates for half a year, you know I mean? And, and he just, he, he, he knew I was going to need that help. And he came out and gave that to me just because of the love of a friend. I was able to make that. That's amazing, man. Amazing. Yeah. Tell me, um, good old Eric. Eric good old Eric. Eric. Everyone, you're a legend. Everyone needs absolutely. Eric. Everyone needs an Eric, but find your own Eric, please, because this one's taken. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me more about the no music thing. Is this is this like some sort of like legit Navy Seal strategy for do, dealing with the toughness? Like, don't I would condition. I would like to. Like, yeah. What is it? Man, I, I would like to pretend that I could uh, hold myself to anything accolatable as the Navy SEALs, but I think it's just me just being stubborn. Like I, because I remember when I, was, I first started training, I, I couldn't listen to music because I had to listen to the wheels uh, on the roller skis. I had to he- I had to listen for traffic, and I just just to be around, just to be aware. So I didn't want any music. I was only doing one or two kilometers at most at first. And then as training started to pick up, I gradually became used to not listening to music. And then I went out to Lane Cove 
early in the morning before they opened the road up to vehicles. And I was just out there and I could have listened to music, certainly, but I never, ever trained with music. I trained without um, because I needed to know what it felt like to be bored while I was doing the thing. I needed to know what it felt like to feel exhausted mentally and just stretched to where I didn't have that, that chorus to kick in to bring me in because I was afraid if I became used to training with music, well, what happened on the day if I crashed and I broke my phone or I broke my iPod or whatever, and then I didn't have music. And then there goes that pillar of support that I became dependent on. So I just trained without it. And actually now for every challenge that I do, I train without music. I just don't, I don't do it. I'm not against it by any means. I think, you know, going for a run with music going years is fantastic. But when it comes to me doing the long haul endurance training, I go musicless and I just tune into my body. Yeah, that's interesting. I I was speaking to an elite swimmer uh, not long ago. And obviously swimmers put in the hours in the pool. Oh, um, yeah. Lots and lots and lots and lots of them. And, um, I was uh, asking, I was asking her, and I've also spoken to an elite swimming coach, asking about like what what to do with one's mind um, yeah. when one is swimming. And they spoke about placing placing your mind. It's basically mindfulness practice. You, you, they're thinking, yeah. they're feeling into the aerody- or the, the thermodynamics of of water and the feeling of the sensation of water gliding over parts of the body and things like that. So, are, are you employing any like conscious strategies as to uh, what to do with your mind or is it kind of like going to and fro and like when you remember you, you go to a strategy or, or tell me a little bit about that that's a, that's a great question and um a good friend of mine mary that runs the indigo project in sydney um i i connected with her on it because they run a, a lot of mindfulness classes and meditation and my my journey really up until the beginning or the middle of my training for this race didn't include mindfulness. It didn't include that. And, my, and at the best, at best of times, my head is a circus, you know, constantly thinking about the what ifs and doubting myself and then using that doubt to, to find the grit in that to then overcome it. And, but it's a lot of energy that you're just cycling around internally, mentally. And to, what, to that point, what I really learned to do was come back to my breathing mm. as, 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 and as 101 as that, as that sounds. But when I was breathing, I knew that I was just centered on that. And, and when I was, because even, even if I was wanted to think about skiing, well, one of, actually one of the best pieces of advice that I got from an Olympic cross-country skier named Barbara Jezersek. She's an Olympic skier from Slovenia that trained with me. She, her and her partner live in Warriwood, just you know, north of Manly. And I trained with her quite a bit. And she said, when, when it comes time for you know, long-distance training like this, she, uh, so as an Olympian, she does a long-distance training. She had actually never skied 90Ks herself. The biggest race she'd done was 45K. And she told me, she said, the best thing you can do is actually not think about it, especially when you go downhill. She says, the first thing that's going to happen when you realize that you're going 60, 70 kilometers an hour flying downhill and your skis are in these tracks just rocketing back and forth and you can just hear it because it's just bang, 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 just really loud. She goes, as soon as you connect into that, then you're going to be worried about falling. And as soon as you get worried about falling, you're going to fall. And that's going to hurt, you know, going that fast. And she said, the best thing I can do or, or recommend that you do is think about something funny or sing a song. 
just get yourself out of it. And so actually to that point, uh, this is, this is incredibly ridiculous because for some reason I like I, nothing against him. I'm just, I wouldn't say I'm the, the biggest Lionel Richie fan in the world. <laughs> uh, but for some reason I, when I was just flying down these downhills, I was just screaming Lionel Richie songs and laughing alternately because of what I was doing. Come on, and that kept me. Oh, oh man, I was dance, <laughs> dancing on the ceiling. Are you kidding me? I was just flying down the hills, <laughs> dancing on the sea. Oh, what a feeling. It's like, Imagine, imagine that view, like being this like Swedish photographer taking pictures of these athletes and here comes this guy. And I was like, I mean, I've got a pretty big, big nose, right? So like my, the wind from is like flopping my nose around. I'm crying. Like the tears are freezing on my face and I'm screaming Lionel Richie. So <laughs> that was me. And, but I had to do that to basically unplug, you know, because if I was, if I took it too seriously, it, it wouldn't have happened. And so I had to, to, I had to listen to my breath. I had to, I had to just stop and laugh about how, you know, how much I was breathing was creating condensation, which was making ice form in my beard. That was just, and I was just really loving that. And that was just bizarre and just really taking in the sights around me and, and, and just laughing, thinking about the, you know, these downhills, bit, but also taking that as an opportunity mm. to scream Lionel Richie, the top of my lung. Those became the race to me. Mm. Um, that became my race. If I would tell you, watching my form perfectly, really being strict to my diet throughout the race, and then watching my timing, and then you know really pushing on the uphills, if I told you that was my race, that would actually be a bit of a lie because I had to get out of that. Because if I did that, I would have taken it too seriously, and I would have started self doubt, and I probably wouldn't have. I, it would it would not be the journey that I would have that that I ended up having. So. Mm. Mm. yeah so, so wow, just man. getting out of it it's yeah really it's really fascinating for me to to, to find out <laughs> what goes on in 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 the mind um you know i've, I've done a couple of minor things in in, in relation to, to some of your epic quests and you know it's all it, more than half the battle is the mental one right it's like especially if you've done the training it's like absolutely and you're you're you know the, the different voices that come into your head and the, the the doubt and things like that i want to i want to get more into you i know you've got a very interesting i really want to explore like motivation and drive um and we, we spoke offline a little bit about one strategy you use to really connect in with the meaning um of the adventures that you're doing um which which to me is just fascinating um but first of all let's get more up to speed with like um some of your subsequent adventures after that after that um, yeah one yeah yeah and um yeah it's just a downhill slide of ridiculousness from here basically <laughs> so 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 the the next thing was um and a lot of these things have happened and uh, i couldn't even say by coincidence it's 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 the way these things have come into my life is just incredible um before i actually did the ski race so i used to do a lot of production with ted like tedx sydney i was on the production team for for that team for three years in sydney and that was a great experience and a guy came out from from the states that was a part of ted and and he and i went to a rugby game together because he'd never watched one and this was before the ski race and he uh, and he told me he's like you know you might find yourself on a journey uh, of that you become a bit addicted to taking these challenges on for charity because you know not you guys not if but when you complete the ski race you know you're, you're gonna really want to carry that experience forward and he said the reason i say that is because i want to plant a suggestion in your mind 
um, out of Canada is a sport called um, mountain unicycling or muni, where people are taking unicycles down mountains at uh, pretty extreme rates. And uh, I would like to suggest you look into that. At, at which point I told him he needs to not have any more of his beer because he was just being a very ridiculous person. <laughs> and I said, no chance you do mountain unicycling. He said, no, 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 it's a thing. You should look into it. Well, about a month and a half later, I was at a dinner party just with some friends in Manly. And uh, we were at a guy's house. I hadn't met him, you know, the, the host of the place. I'd never met him before, but he was at the table. And the topic of the challenge, of the upcoming ski challenge came up. And then this guy actually asked, he said, what, what are you going to do after? And that question started to come up a bit. And I said, his name's Charlie, great guy. And I said, well, you know, funny thing, I've actually heard about this mountain unicycle uh, sport. And his eyes got massive. And he said, what do you know about Muni? And I was like, oh, it's like I've just stumbled into this kind of cult. Yeah. I, was like, I, I was like, man, I know nothing about it, but this guy just told me about it. And he, he said, two seconds. He goes into another room in the house and he came out with a mountain unicycle, <laughs> full-fledged mountain unicycle. And, he, and I was like, what is this? And he said, he said, I'm the president of the Northern Beaches Unicycle Club. <laughs> he's like not only will we train you but we'll help you get a mountain unicycle he said our biggest race is in four months time it happens every two years in a new country this year it's going to be in spain and it's going to be the biggest mountain unicycle race that's ever been done um if we can train you he goes i might be able to get you in with the unicycle association globally of which there is a thing and uh and maybe we can get you representing australia all right, on to the next thing. So I didn't start training on the unicycle straight away because I had the ski race to complete. But when I came back from Sweden, having done the ski race, I came back on a Thursday and I met Charlie on Sunday and confirmed that I was going to take on the mountain unicycle challenge for a new small charity called Milk Crate Theater in Sydney. So here we go. I had about three months to learn how to unicycle, which I did do. Ended up um, getting accepted by the Unicycle Association and got sponsored. So my, my entry fee of $300 was waived. And uh, I found myself uh, suited up wearing the Australia jersey going down a mountain on a unicycle. <laughs> Dude, like, I just can't my head around this. Like, I, yeah. I've actually, I've been, I did a um, 100K mountain bike once. And as I finished the line, um, I, was, I was like crying um, with some weird yeah. delirium. And, and, I yeah. saw, and I saw this guy with a unicycle just like cru cruising cruising around in his band there like and with his race gear he'd, he'd done the race and and there was a part yeah. of, there was a part of me that was just like there's no fucking way that that guy just did yeah. what i just did in the unicycle like i, I could i could not couldn't, i could not believe it like it was too yeah. technical it was too yeah. like how the hell do you go downhill on a unicycle mate yeah that's 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 absolutely the question that i had when i got into it as well and it's uh it's, it's interesting because I was, I was fully suited up. Like I look like a bloody hockey goalie going down this mountain, you know, and, and ready for it. And it was, it's not easy. Uh, if, uh, if you can imagine, <laughs> but, but you, so you get the, this, this unicycle has a, tw it's a 26 inch wheel with a proper mountain bike tire, fully reinforced tube. And it has a disc brake on it and it's still a fixed wheel, right? So your pedals are still fixed. It's not like, you know, mm. And it has a disc brake. And I never learned how to use the disc brake just because you think of like the, the forward momentum that you have keep going. And once you hit a 
disc break. Like it just stops like on a dime. And I just kept, I threw myself off of that unicycle so many times. And the tricky thing as well is like the pedals have spiked so you could keep your grip on it. So once you misstep, like I've got scars still down the back of my calves, you know, that I little race trophies that I call them um, from that. But it was, it was incredibly tough. And so when I signed up to do the race, the unicycle association thought I could unicycle. And then, and then, you know, then I went back, then the today show reached back out. And then, um, cause I had another TV interview and then, or another newspaper interview. And then the was a TV again. And that made its way back to the unicycle association. Cause I had tagged them in a post and then they emailed me very seriously and said, we had no idea. You didn't know how to unicycle. This is the hardest mountain bike or how, my hardest mountain unicycle race in the world. I have this email and I actually used part of this in my talk for overcoming objections because they emailed me and they said, we strongly consider you do a flatland race. Cause you could do like a marathon or half marathon on the unicycle. Cause there was all sorts of unicycle competitions happening at the, at the time of this competition as well. And they said, we recommend you doing that. The mountain unicycle race is just too difficult for anyone just starting out. You put yourself in danger, others at danger. Because when you go down these, these cliffs, it was in San Sebastian, Spain. Like There was actually areas of cliff that you ride around. I mean, it was quite serious. And so, but the problem is, is I already converted, I, you know, confirmed with the charity and committed to doing this for them. So I, I wrote them back and I said, look, look with all due respect, because as an association, they were just looking out for my safety and other safety. And I completely appreciate that. So I said, with, with respect to your view and concern, which is completely justified, um, if I can't ride down the mountain in your race, I'm, I'm just going to have to find another mountain to ride down. And I would just much rather do it with you guys. I said, is there any way that I can send you like every three days or so, send you an update of me riding on the unicycle to prove that I've learned how to do it? Um, and if I can do that, is there any way that I can be, you know, good enough? Because I wasn't sure how, I mean, how do you even qualify for something like that? So I said, if there's a way that I could prove that I can ride this unicycle, uh, you know, off-road, would you be willing to consider it? And they came back after a few days and they came back and said, if you provide us with ample updates um, and track your progress, we'll, we'll reconsider. And I did. I used the Strava app. Um, and uh, funnily enough, there is not a mountain unicycle option on Strava, so I just used my the bicycle app and I was just going around Manly Dam. I was going around Narrabeen Lake. I was just doing all sorts of things like that and sending them the progress updates. And a few weeks out from the event, they, they sent me an email and said, yeah, we're actually impressed with your progress. And I'm quite proud of it. They said, you're probably going to be one of the most motivated people we have on the mountain. You've learned it so fast. And on I went. So not, not only you know was I accepted, but I was actually accepted by the Australian Unicycle Association com- um, Committee, and I represented Australia in the race. Wow, man. So how, how long did you have to train for this race? Uh, is, is it all up about three, three and a half months? That's not long to learn how to unicycle and, it, and then do it off-road, do it on treacherous terrain. Like, were you terrified? Yep. Horribly. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it took me about two weeks to learn how to unicycle. So, so I, once I got that down and, and to see the thing is as well, back to support and community, oh man, the, the, the unicycle community globally are 
an incredible bunch of people. Like as, as soon as they kind of got wind of what was happening, I, I started to get all these messages and friend requests on Facebook. And you can always spot a unicyclist on Facebook because if they're a unicyclist, their profile photo is them on a unicycle. Right? And, and what, what, is these, it about, what is it about unicyclists? What, what is this? They're thing? amazing. Like, what, like, they're just, why, why is there such a, what's so good about a unicycle? I think there's, I, I think that there is, there's just a camaraderie and a lot of similar elements to these people, right? Like there's, they're, they've obviously got a sense of humor. They've got good drive, yeah. but they're, they're talented. Like, I mean, extremely talented, extremely you know, dri- like driven and they're just fun. Like, the, like yeah, just, like just really rebels. good natured people. They're just the rebels of the cycling community. Yeah. And, and, and they're, but they take it. It's, there's no small humor between them about it. Like they take it quite seriously. And, you know, there's, there's tricks, you know, like as you're riding your unicycle, they call it like the seat drag where you just stand up and let the seat fall back on the ground. And then they're just standing up cycling and the seats dragging along behind them. They're all super proud once they nail the seat (laughs) drag, you know? And, And I just got to know these things about them. And, and through that, through that challenge, I made so many incredible friends around the world due to unicycling just because of this. And, and there was just so much support and there was never ever an ounce of like, this is our territory, you know, like don't drop in on our sport kind of thing. It was just love, like just incredible people. So that was great. Like, that was one of the best experiences. And then hundreds of friends came out of that. It's just amazing. And tell me about the race itself. So you had an 11 hour ski race where you'd never been on skis. And so how did, yeah. what was sort of like the, the <laughs> <laughs> this one it was brilliant so at the top of the mountain so we had to take a bus up to the top of this mountain in san sebastian it was a 14 kilometer long race um and in you the rules were like if you fall it's okay it, and if, if you walk with your unicycle now and then it's okay as well the rules are you can't pass anyone if you're not riding your unicycle so you're not allowed to like pick your unicycle up and sprint for it you know? and um so the beginning of the race, there was there was nine waves, right? So the, the the greatest riders were wave one, and there was all the way. Oh, sorry, no, there was eight waves, and they placed me in the seventh wave. They should have placed me in the eighth, but I got placed in the seventh. And they're letting people go in like every I think it was intervals of like two or three minutes. They were they were raising the gate, and then off off the next set would go, and then and then our turn got got uh, came up to the gate. And these, as I said, these people in this race take it quite seriously. And I was next to this Polish unicyclist. And you could tell because he had this big Polish jersey on that was made for this race. And I was wearing this Australian jersey, which which is a great looking jersey. It's actually this a, a kangaroo on a mountain unicycle, if you can imagine. But um, but I got up to this. I got up to the start line and the judge called out, OK, we have 30 seconds to go. Everybody hover or everybody idle now idol what does idol mean and i and the guy the polish guy looks at me and he says do you do you know how to idle i was like no and he's like you know that's where you get on your unicycle and you just kind of balance waiting and i said oh no i can't do that and he and he said he goes what do you mean you can't do it he's you're about to do the hardest downhill mountain unicycle race in the world 
and you can't idle. I was like, no, I can't idle, but I can go forward and I'm just going <laughs> to do that. And then I asked him, I said, can I use your shoulder to get on my unicycle? Cause I need help. He's like, what? <laughs> and then as I said that people behind me started just inching out of the way because they just knew I was going to face planet. And um, yeah, so he helped me get on the gun went off and, and on we went and we just, and we unicycled down and I fell a fair few times and I took a few, pretty good hits but it was uh but you just get back on you know I, I one thing i i learned to do was free mount where you you can pop up on your unicycle without holding something fairly well um at the start of the race i was too nervous to do it on my own but um i yeah it was it was enough to keep me going so it took me going down the mountain it took me an hour and 22 minutes and, and i was fifth from last so i didn't come last actually i was super excited about that somehow there was four people behind me i know how and I hope they're okay. But oh man! So are there it was amazing. Like, were there any like uphill sections as well? Yeah, there was some uphill sections, and some of those I had to walk. To be honest, yeah. because it was it was starting to get super technical, and and but a lot of those guys and girls, man, like, and 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 talk about just the athletic prowess that people had. Like you had sixteen-year-old girls out there just smoking it on these things. I mean, and and it wasn't it wasn't like you might picture a circus with these people like, like juggling and high-fiving, like, no, like during the Mount unicycle race, it was game face time. People were super serious about it. And, uh, it was amazing. Wow. Just, man. I can't, I'm going to, I'm going to have to look up a YouTube video of like to see some of these elite guys, because I, I struggle to even picture a man. cyclist, like pegging it down a mountain. It was, there was like 350 people that did that race with us. And imagine 300, that's 350 wheels flying around the mountain at the same time. Like it was just incredible. So, so the race was called, uh, Unicon. And if you just Google Unicon or Google, yeah. like YouTube it, you'll, you'll get some footage from it and probably some footage of my goofy self out there <laughs> cycling it as well. <laughs> nice, man. It was just amazing, man. So what, uh, and so what was the one after that? Is that the so, Arctic one? Yeah, that and that one that was you, you can even hear, but just the 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 pitch of my voice dropped just there, like yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that was that was the one that really rung my bell. Uh, so it was the world's hardest mountain bike race, uh, in in yeah in in the Arctic. It was seven hundred kilometers um, in high summer, so it was basically just one long day of of cycling. So the sun doesn't set, you know, that that far up. It was in Alta, Norway, in the very far North Arctic. And, um, it was, that was incredible. That, that race, that race in itself was designed to break you. Um, and the organizers will admit it. So that what they do is they start the race at 6 PM at night, um, just to mess with you. So that way you just have all day to sit and wait for what's coming. And before a race, you never sleep well anyway. So essentially it'd been up for about two hours before the race. And, um, and talk about friends and support. So Charlie, the, the unicycle pr president, uh, you know, the North Beaches unicycle president, uh, he joined me for this race. So he came up to Alta and we needed a team of three. So it was Charlie and one other guy that was also a unicyclist joined me. So Tommy from Townsville, uh, Townsville is very different from the Arctic. So he had his climate challenges to deal with. And, uh, so it was Tommy, Charlie and I that went up and took this thing on as a team of three and, Oh man, that was, that was, that was incredible. So we went through, it was, um, we made it to the third checkpoint and it was 200 kilometers in. We'd been cycling for just over 29 hours, nonstop, not including the time we'd been awake before the race started. 
and um, just going through, we, we, we ended up climbing uh, 3,600 meters, uh, th- sorry, yeah, th- uh, yeah th- 3,600 meters and just battling it out in some extremely rough conditions. Massive storms came in. It was hitting minus 10, minus 12 degrees in a lot of spots. And uh, even though it was summertime up there, and we'd get snow, a lot of snow. And, uh, and, uh, and the thing that people don't tell you about the Arctic is the mosquitoes. We were covered in, in Arctic mosquitoes. And those things were serious. Like we you had to have head nets on um, and full, full body wool. I mean, just not just to help kind of take sweat off your body, but keep the mosquitoes off because they were, they were relentless up there. And that was... I, I honestly, I like, oh, I get a little bit exhausted just thinking back on that experience, man, because that was going that far. I've never been on a mountain bike race ever, not even a 10K, nothing. You know, and, and I've done a fair bit of training for it, but the best you could, but nothing's going to prepare you for that. We had, we had mud fields, you know, you'd go through 30 kilometer long mud fields that were as deep as your knees. And, and somehow these riders were finding the right patches to make it through. And it, it was just, demoralizing it was just rip out any sense of drive that you had like you'd, you'd go up you'd, you'd make the summit of a mountain only to realize it was a false summit so you were not even halfway to where you were going you're like oh god and, and then it would turn into rain and ice and you're out there in the middle of nowhere and so there was there was no support team like you're out there alone there's no there was no phone your phone wouldn't work there was you were unsupported and the thing i didn't realize until after we got back out of the uh, out of the Finnmark Martin, mountains out there in the Arctic, was there's not even a hospital in the area. So if something had happened, they would have had to have yeah, somehow or another. After a while, they'd come and check on you because your GPS dot would stand still. But uh, then, if anything happened, they'd have to fly you to, to Tromso, which is like you know 700 k's away, which is like the nearest. You know, sorry, that was 1400 k's away, which is the nearest hospitals i mean it was serious like it was real real (laughs) real stuff and and you realize it like you're out there and at one point we were riding along and tommy um sorry tommy i'm naming and shaming you but but tommy fell asleep on his bike you know because we were so so delirious and just starving and and, and, and Tommy fell asleep and he actually woke up having ridden off the path a little way. He just screamed and he came back on a little ways later. We, we started, they, they were calling them the, you know, the mountain illusions. The, and so there were these time checkpoints that you get, you'd only allowed to spend five minutes at the checkpoint uh, of which we'd been to two of them. And they, on the last checkpoint, they said, get ready for the mountain illusions that'll come on the next stage. Once you get really high into the mountains and you're like, yeah, right. Like, come on, they're just trying to mess with us. And no, like we were riding along and, and, uh, one point we, we stopped to check our GPSs and Charlie went off the trail just to make sure his GPS was, you know, coordinating quite right. And when he went off the trail, I, I, and Jiro, it's bizarre, man. I will never not see this white Toyota Camry that I saw, but I saw this white Toyota Camry a ways off of the track. And I thought, Oh, thank God. Like, that's good that there's a car there, that means there's obviously like a, a support road that at least we can ride. Cause, cause most of the trail was not easily rideable. It's rocks and just really tricky. So, so I said, you know, so if there's this, if, if, at least if there's this support road, we can, we can go. And, and Tommy, who is standing next to me, is like, what do you mean support road? I was like, well, there's check out. There's that, that white car there. 
And he looked at me, he's like, what white car? And then we both looked back and it was just a big rock. I was like, oh no, oh no. And it was, and it was just wind howling, no support, no phones, no nothing. And you realize that you're out there. And yeah, it was, uh, it, it was amazing. So do you guys have like sleeping equipment or are you, is it literally designed to be done in one go? So it's designed to be done. There's two places throughout the whole 700 K that you had to sleep for four and a half hours each. And that was all you were allowed. And so by the third checkpoint that we made it to was one of the designated sleeping areas, but we were three hours behind time on the checkpoint, making it into the checkpoint. So unfortunately we only made it 200 Ks in the 700 K rates. But that being said, that was a huge, huge success for us because none of us had ever mountain bike raced before to making it that far. Like the race organizers said they were super proud. They didn't think we were going to make it to 55 K, which is the first checkpoint, but we, we made it 200 K and, and we would have we were happy to say we would have kept going, but it was, it was, it was kind of a sweet relief to hear that we were disqualified oh, bet, because we were just broken, absolutely broken. Oh, bro. So, so tell me a little bit about, let's, let's get into the, the drive and the motivation. So um, drive, the psychology of motivation is, is something that's interesting to me. I've read a couple of books, um, yeah. learned a little bit about intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation. A lot of these yeah. really play into flow state science as well yeah uh, figuring how to like uh, optimize for states of flow um and really it's when it comes down to it the 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 basic science that i understand is that extrinsic motivation is great in certain circumstances but it's not really sustainable and then there's this sort of like inner meaningful purpose the why which has a lot more legs to it um so can you talk me through your real life experience of motivators and drive man to to be honest if it and that's a great question because that's 100% of the purpose behind this. Because if it wasn't for the charities that I'm supporting in these, there's no chance. There is no chance I would go down a mountain on a unicycle, right? And, and or, or any of these things. And, and it, I only learn more uh, as these challenges go. As I said, now I'm into my fourth uh, training for the fourth challenge coming up next, next October. But as these stages go on, like the things that I've learned from the charities and the families and the children, especially that I get to meet uh, throughout the process, you learn to me, it was, it began with, I'm going to raise money to help a small charity do a good thing for these children with grief. And then I got to really meet the kids and hear their stories. And I, I became driven by that. Same thing with the second charity for the third charity for the mountain bike race. That's when it really spun on its head for me because I was supporting a small charity um, a small Norwegian-based charity that's helping families in Lebanon through the Syrian refugee crisis. Mm. So I actually went over to Lebanon in May of last year before the race to do some filming with the charity so that way I could get some vision for what's actually taking place on the ground. So this wasn't you know, news, news feed vision or anything with any agenda. There was no, nothing at all. This charity is there to help people in refugee camps sustain life where they're at you know so this removed all the political stuff that was going on about refugees and it continues to go on about the refugee topic and i just got to meet these people and i got to hear their story and and two two children that i met changed my life forever one girl i walked into a into a, a hut basically and her name i i and i felt 
I actually felt this girl's presence before I even saw her. She's just this, this beautiful little angel of a girl that just had the strongest presence about her. She's six years old. And here she was with her, uh, she was sitting in the room by herself. And then her family came in after it was her dad and brother, or sorry, her dad and two sisters. And she was sitting there with a little mask on her face. And I got to hear her story about how she just, it was about two months ago, she had just come across the mountains in Syria. Because we were actually on the Syrian border in these refugee camps. And uh, the Minister of Social Affairs for Lebanon heard what we were doing there and gave, gave us access to meet with the Shavish, which is the refugee camp leaders um, from the local people. And then they ultimately gave us access to meet these families. So we went in and got to meet these kids and hear their stories. And, and, and this girl, she just made it over the mountains uh, from Syria into Lebanon. And shortly after she gets cancer. So she has cancer of her face. And so she's dealing with all these other things that are happening. And that was just horrible. But unfortunately, the money that it would have taken to raise uh, for that surgery, that could have gone to building other camps. So it was just really difficult to, to get her story traction enough to get her support. And i um, happy to say through this, we were able to connect a number of different organizations and raise enough awareness for her that we actually got 20,000 US dollars together to save her life. And so you guys see on my arm here, I actually have her name tattooed on my forearm. It's little Ritaj Al-Mufasat, and I'll never forget her. Um, just the, the spirit and the beauty that she was and just this constant smile that she had on her face, despite conditions that like we couldn't even wrap our mind around. And so that was her story. Then another kid that I met when we were there, uh, the, the father, it was a father and two boys. And it was a really tough story because, um, say, save for the details, but they, they unfortunately lost two daughters in the family and the mother uh, on the way over. Um, so they're no longer with us. And these, this, this family, this new family unit of the dad and two brothers are, are in this camp and they've been there for two weeks, right? And the dad's telling us this story and he's asking, he's like, please just don't film our faces because we don't want anyone to find out where we're at because they could, it could lead to bad things. And so I'm there. And then Jiro, the most remarkable thing happened. Man. The, one of the boys went up and, and tugged on his dad's pants and he said something in Arabic and the translator that we were with just, just almost teared up. And the dad's, got this, he's got this really big look on his face and he looked at me and he looked at the boy and he gave the boy permission to, to do whatever he asked he could do. And the boy walked up to me and he just held his little hand out and he gave me a, a stick of gum. And what he had said in Arabic, he, he said, he had just arrived in that camp two weeks ago and he knew I was new to the camp too. And he didn't want me to feel lonely, like, and, and he didn't want me to feel like an outsider, like he felt when he first showed up. So he wanted me to get to have this gift to make me feel welcome. And that gift was the last thing that he was able to take from his home in his pockets when he fled his house, which was a tiny little piece of gum. And may I still have that. It's the best gift I've ever received in my life. And you hear stories like this and you, and some even stories like that, but being able to meet beautiful people like that and see real human condition um, in practice. It was just, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So when, when you connect with things like that, you realize the world is inherently an amazing place. And ultimately it's my responsibility to do what I can to help charities, help as many of these people as I possibly can. That's my personal mission. And it's, I'm just unwavering from that goal. 
Mm. And so connecting, connecting to the memory of that. Um, and I, I, I often take a, a photo. I actually don't take that gum with me because it's one of my most prized possessions, but I take a photo of it with me. Um, anytime I go out training or anytime I'm on, you know, on that next challenge, I took it, but it's certainly going with me on any of the further challenges that I do. And the more that I do these things, the more I connect with, uh, with, with new, with new stories like this. And they're, they're, they're all around us. It's amazing. Wow, man. That's, that's just mind blowing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. What a powerful, powerful story of the, the, the power of connecting with, 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 with those, with that purpose. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And you said that you had like the photos on the handlebars. Um, yeah. Of when you were yeah. doing this Arctic race and the pain was deep. And yeah, absolutely. And, and, and pain was, oh, there was so much pain. So on such a constant basis, but, but I had, yeah, I had um, pictures of the Syrian, you know, a lot of the refugee children that I'd met. Yeah. You know, I don't even like the refugee children. It's the children that I met, you know, t- taped on my handlebars and uh, and of course, you know, a picture of my, my girlfriend on my handlebars as well. So <laughs> motivation for different sorts. But that, um, I just constantly kept looking down at those smiles that these kids had on their faces uh, in these pictures and just thinking like, they, they have every right to, to look at life in a bad lens and they make a conscious decision to smile on a daily basis. And I could tell you, you, you see news or you see charity videos and you, you may think, you know, those smiles are doctored for the camera and they're not. Those smiles on those children are constant because they're, they're kids and they, 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 they make conscious decisions to be the beautiful children that they are. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So you connect to that and you connect to those experiences and it's just, uh, yeah, it, it's something that you could carry with you forever. And I, and I certainly have. So, yeah. So the next, cha- next charity is going to be to help another, uh, you know, the next challenge is going to be to help another charity that's directly helping a bunch of children and families, yeah. um, in, in much the same respect. So and what's, what's the charity called? Uh, the next charity is called apricot. It's at apricotchildren.org. Uh, so raising funds for them and they are helping families all around Japan that are still recovering from the, uh, the natural disasters from 2011. So, you know, you had these tsunamis, you know, the earthquake and it created a massive amount of radiation and tsunami that came and just washed that radiation all across the country. And now you have all these radiation zones that families are forced to live around. And it's just a lot of ongoing devastating situations for the families. And um, this charity is a small NPO that's just doing so much with community counselors, school teachers, and just doing what they can to reconnect families because a lot of families have been separated. Um, reconnect families, reestablish family units, and provide ongoing mental health for the children in the area. Um, it's just a, a lot of beautiful stories to come mm. from this. So that's that's my effort now for the next challenge. And what is the next challenge, Josh? Yeah, yeah. Are you so, allowed to say? Is it? Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One hundred percent. I'm thrilled to say. So I'm I'm going to be hand cycling uh, across the entire length of Japan um, in October. <laughs> so. Yeah, starting October first, I'm starting not, in Cape Soya. Not the width of Japan. Like Japan's a very no, long no. Place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, long three three thousand and eight kilometers. It's probably going to take me about three or four weeks, I imagine. And um, it's not a race. It's not something that exists. It's just something I've designed on my own. And I'm just going to be crossing the country 
uh, for however long it takes me to do it and, and riding through some of these rebuilt areas and hopefully connecting with some of the beautiful families along the way um, that are, you know, going through the uh, recovery from the, the tsunamis and, when and um, uh, October. So October 1st, I start pushing. So I'm going to start from Cape Soya in the far north, and I'm going to hand cycle all the way down to the furthest north, uh, furthest southern point on the mainland of Japan, so across both major mainland islands. Okay. And I've never been to Japan, and I've never been on a hand cycle. So Still? We've got things you done. You haven't tried hand cycle? I, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of training in the gym for it uh, with bands and various things i was i for the first time ever i was on a hand cycle last weekend um there's a i was connected to a spinal injury group called the lars association here in norway that uh, brought me a hand cycle so i could train over the weekend because i've never even like sat in the hand cycle before and um because they're, they're not easy to get you know these are for folks that have gone through a life-changing situation they've had a moment that now they've an instance that have caused them to be in a wheelchair more often than not and now they've got to be in you know in in hand cycle so it's 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 there's not a lot of suppliers that actually provide hand cycles so getting in touch with them has been a little tricky but i've got a few interesting inroads and i've got a on Thursday morning, I've got a phone call with the Australian Paralympic Association, um, or the APC, the Australian Paralympic Commi- uh, Committee, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to get some traction through there. Because what I'm uh, hoping to get, because I fund all of this, you know, all the it comes out of my pocket, so I'm hoping to get like a loaner hand cycle or something to that effect where I can ride across. But for now. Um, I'm just doing all I can to train while I'm here. There's a guy that just reached out in Stavanger in Norway on the west coast where i live now um that has a hand cycle so i'll start training with him and we've got about four months or so to go and um we'll be good, we'll be good. <laughs> Look at, i've done it i suppose you, you, you i mean yeah that's an interesting thing to explore like what what your, your mindset around these new challenges like having done one yeah having done two then having done three like is, is there a sort yeah. of cumulative kind of confidence that builds up it it does but in in an interesting way because we didn't finish that last arctic race this this confidence that did start to build up got a gut check um and that was great for reality that was that was good for for the ego um and that was good for the reality of of you know the seriousness of these things because i'm not i mean i never have been an incredibly fit athletic person you know and i do put myself completely to the test and dedicate myself entirely and my, my body entirely to these challenges. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm just a fallible person. just like everybody else. So you do get a bit of confidence, but the confidence that I get is once I, once I give myself the, once I give myself the go ahead to actually take these things on, then, then I know that I have the ability to do it, but there's no given then it's just going to happen. Yeah. So, so yeah. So in training for this for now, you know, I, I've reached out to a few hand cycling communities on Facebook and the overwhelming response has been the best way to train for it is using the cross country ski machines, which would have been great to have had in Australia when I was training for the cross country ski race. Yeah. But now I'm using a cross country ski machine to train my shoulders and abs and chest and all that yeah. stuff. So is it like, it's just, 
Is it rotation or is it? It's just rot. It's that, that. So the ski machine is just. It's, it's a downward pull yeah. on a couple of cables, and that that gets the that gets the push momentum going. And then the other half of my training has been on a rower. So I, I'm a sit rower and the cross country ski machine. I've been spending a lot of time between the two, and then of course there's strength training for that as well. And then I've just made up this exercise where I take a bench uh, against the wall and I put a couple of elastic bands to the wall and I just cycle in the air and I look like a complete yeah. Yeah. weirdo so in the gym doing it. rotation that you're doing. Yeah, okay. full rotation. Yep, wow. that's it. So so that's that's the training that I'm in right now. And um, and surprisingly, it takes a lot of abs. There's a lot of core work in it um, as well and, and, and neck too because over so much jostling, you know, going down the road. I mean, you can really, really kind of yeah. affect your neck and neck muscles. So there's been a lot of neck training, like different stretches <laughs> and things like that. So that's, that's, that's been the middle of my universe now is, is training and preparing for this. Wow, man. I take my invisible hat off to you. <laughs> You're an absolute beast of oh, motivation and drive. And it's, it's just, um, it's just, amazing um that's a huge compliment coming from you juro i appreciate that mate thank you oh man I've, I've been i've been feeling like um you know i need a challenge it's interesting i'm not I'm not signing up for anything and um <laughs> you're in <laughs> <laughs> done it's, uh, there's a weird part of me that's been as we've been com- I, I as we've been going through this conversation there's a weird part of me that's just been like waiting to get to the part where we talk about the hand cycling thing <laughs> like can I, is this something i gotta do and then like there's still a part of me that's just like really would 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 love to do it and um yeah it's like the i really just gotta just pay respect to the to, to the size of the challenge it's like signing up it's not like signing up to a triathlon which is big enough like yeah there's just such this unknown factor to it as well it, it adds this absolutely adds, adds something adds this something quite absolutely um, yeah almost like the scary element to it you know it, it, it that is there is a scary scary element and that's yeah. the thing that does that it's you have to have a bit of an appetite for that and and it's an appetite that grows you know because once you yeah. once you get to that point and you do because every time you come back you know you come back from one of these things and you realize your your comfort zones expanded a bit permanently because yeah. now you know you know other experiences and you know you can trust yourself to be able to handle things to prepare for things in the appropriate ways. Yeah. And it's it's constantly going to push that out. So you so the fear and the difficulty never ever goes away. Mm. You know, it never gets easier. Yeah. You just you just get braver. You can yeah, okay. Yeah, more comfortable with the uncomfortable. I think that's That's it. That's I it. And that's a, from a brave man. That, um, yeah and that's a, that's a big takeaway because it doesn't if it, you know yeah. if you think you know anybody that goes up there yeah it's just it doesn't or put yourself out there like that it does it doesn't get easy it's not something you're just accustomed to you you it just you just learn how to deal with the incredible fire that builds up in your stomach when you're yeah idling on a unicycle idling. about to go down a mountain Have you- have you always been disciplined and one for challenges? Like did in your twenties, did you regard yourself as someone who was, you know, were you always training? Were you always the guy that got up at 6am and made his bed and went to the gym? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I, I, because I didn't, I, I didn't connect with that, that motivation. I mean, I've always been driven. I've always been driven, you know, like I was, you know, coming from Colorado, it, you know, my family come, you know, is still there. Um, 
And I always wanted to live in Australia. So that was something that I'd just done. I didn't know anybody there. And 14 years ago, I just picked up and moved. And, and one-way ticket and my visa excuse was to go to university. I would never really plan to go to university. I just did it as a means to be able to stay in Australia. So I, I do love to, like swan diving into adventures and kind of taking that stuff on. And, and, yeah. and you know, just the same now, like I've now moved and uh, I live on the West Coast of Norway and I'm having an incredible time out here and and just trying on a new life and lifestyle out here and learning a new language and that's all been great so there's elements to it but it's but in terms of the physical capacity i like i've never really been that guy like i'm not been the like i'm not built for it from you know from a young age it's i'm i'm new here (laughs) and it shows often (laughs) <laughs> oh man it's so much respect well Cheers, thank you buddy. so much for coming on the show josh um, oh, give us pleasure. what is it out how can people find your website outspire yes yeah, so you can follow it's at outspire.org so it's o-u-t-s-p-i-r-e.org and so all the updates are there and you know the news about the latest challenge and previous challenges and and awesome. all the all the updates so yeah thank you so much for coming on the show brother But pleasure is absolutely mine. Thank you for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Appreciate it. I told you it was going to be a good episode. Josh is so humble and so driven. It just blows my mind, his his integrity and his dedication. During that episode, there were times where I was thinking, man, I want something that he's got. I want this drive. I want this discipline. I want this dedication. And then I remembered that it's possible. It's just about connecting with deeper levels of meaning. So that's my journey. I'm going to get the journal out. I'm going to go to nature and I'm going to start doing some work on the deepest levels of meaning that I could possibly mine um, to motivate myself to take on greater and greater challenges in my life. And I urge you to do the same. What is it that you might find down there and what might it empower you to accomplish in your life? Good questions there. Before we go, I want to direct your attention to the flow formula. If you haven't yet downloaded it, please go to flowstate.co forward slash get in flow. I created a formula based on my study into breath work, into uh, the psychology of Carl Jung and into flow state neuroscience. And I saw patterns between all of those things and also the four seasons of nature. And I developed a simple four step uh, system which follows the elements earth, air, fire, water. And these four elements uh, each come with a, a mindset and a breath practice to help you drop into flow, which is the water stage, to drop into being held in the flow of life. And uh, yeah, go check it out. It's uh, some of my finest work. If you're a founder of a company looking for your tribe, go to flowstatex.com. These days, I'm going to tell you what I'm reading right now. Uh, I just finished reading The Alchemist. If you haven't read it, like just read it. You can read it in three hours. It's the most beautiful book. It tells it. It's just such a phenomenal reminder of how to live in the flow of life by following the omens, the signs, the signals of nature, and by leaping on opportunities that present themselves. It's really a beautiful poetic book into living in flow. It's really quite special. Another book that I'm reading right now is Donut Economics, which is much more about systems change and about climate change and about what we can do about some of the systemic problems that we face as a species. It's a fantastic book written by an academic called Kate Raworth. I'd love to get her on the podcast soon. Uh, Maybe that's coming up. Let's manifest that together. 
Apart from that, I'm wishing you a beautiful day, beautiful evening of flow. Don't forget that the depth of your flow experiences in life is correlated to the commitment to your flow practices. If you ain't meditating, if you ain't doing breath practices, if you're not connecting with nature, if you're not spending time every single day to create space away from digital, then you're neglecting your practice and you're going to experience less flow. On the other hand, if you commit every day with dedication to your flow practices, and if you want to know more about them, just go to flowstate.co or go to flowtribe.co. We're running a retreat very soon, which is going to all be about flow practices and mastering them. That's it for now. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.